Good morning, family. I, can you believe Easter season's already here? It's, we feel like we just had Christmas. It's coming quick. So good to be here. For those of you that might not know me, I'm Pastor Paul. I'm one of our associate pastors. I'm our worship pastor, one of our teaching pastors, and I'm, I'm blessed to share the word with you this morning. But I was impressed just to share during our time of worship. Is there anything more important than, uh, than being in the presence of God? Is there, I mean, think how many days can go by that we don't have that connection every day. And, and we don't have to do it on a Sunday morning. We can, we can connect with God's presence like that every day. And I just encourage you to do that. Don't wait till a Sunday morning to press into the presence of God because you can do that every single day. And I can't think of anything more valuable than God's presence. Can you? I don't think there is, and, and I'm so grateful for his presence in our lives. Let's get into the word this morning. If you have your Bible, would you, would you maybe hold it up with me? Um, or if you have it on your phone or your tablet, like hold up your phone or tablet. Or Good, we got a lot of Bibles here. This, is, this book is, um, this is an amazing book. There's, there's no other book like this, right? Um, and we, the thing about this book is, uh, like with any book, context is important, isn't it? Like, you wouldn't pick up any other book and just read, like, one chapter or a few pages and then come away and go, oh, yeah, I know what that book's all about. Would you do that? You couldn't, right? Um, the Bible's the same in that sense, except that because there's so much to get out of it, no matter what page you turn to, we can be tempted sometimes to read it and forget context. And context with the Bible is just as important. You... You cannot just grab the Bible and read a chapter and some verses and think you have the full context of the Bible. Um, and that's why I would encourage every single person, if you have not, read this Bible from the beginning to the end and get the context of it. And here's why that's, that's so important. The, the Bible has a main narrative, a main storyline um, that is really, really important if you're a Christian. Okay? Um, and... It can get lost. Like, like, we try to come up with clever acronyms and, like, catchphrases for the Bible. Like, who's heard the, you know, the B-I-B-L-E, the basic instructions before what? Leaving Earth? We all heard that, right? I, I can guarantee you, if you pick this thing up and read it cover to cover, you would not put it down and go, oh, I just got instructions before leaving Earth. I, I promise you wouldn't. And it's so, it, I'm not, to, not to dog on that too much, but that's just an example of how we can miss the context of Scripture, of the Bible. Um, sure, there's a lot of basic instructions in here, um, but you would not read the Bible and come away with the main storyline that, oh, I thank God that I had this book of some instructions before leaving earth. You would find a lot of other stuff in the Bible, um, right? Uh, but not just some basic instructions. The Bible is a, is a crazy story. It's a crazy story. And there's a, there's a storyline that runs through it, um, that goes far beyond just some basic instructions. There's a I'll tell you the story of the Bible. I'll sum it up as best I can. Um, there is a God who wants relationship with us. And he goes through every means he can possibly go through to restore us to relationship with him. And you know how he does it? Through his son, Jesus. And you know, Jesus is coming back again to be with us forever. That, I think I just summed up the Bible for you in like 10. That right there is the storyline of the Bible. Now, yeah, you got all kinds of other stuff happening. You read the Bible and find all these stories and prophecies, half of which we don't understand half the time without the help of the Holy Spirit, right? You guys ever read the Old, Old Testament prophets? It, there, there's a lot there. 
So you've got this story of, of these, this nation, Israel, and God trying to draw them to himself, and all these pictures and foreshadows pointing to a Messiah, a Savior who would come, right? And all this poetry and all these uh, pictures that we get in the Old Testament. And then you've got this guy, Jesus, coming on the scene, and, and the, go- uh, the Gospels, right, that are all about his life. And he takes these 12 guys, and he turns this whole world upside down with these guys. Why? Because he's bringing the kingdom of heaven, and he's bringing it to the kingdom of earth. That's the gospel. That's what God wants to do, and he did it through his son. And then he has to die and rise again, and that is the crux of what we call the gospel. He saved sinners with his death and resurrection. And then you know what he did? He went back to heaven, and he told all these guys, you take my gospel now. You spread it. Guess what? That's us, too, that he called to do that. And so we now live in this age of the church where we're to spread the gospel and make disciples. And then it all culminates at the end when the king returns, the second coming of Christ, right? And we go to be with him forever. Um, That's the context of the Bible. And the reason I bring that up is because as we get in into the scripture today that we're going over, I want to touch on something that I think is very, very important about how we read and understand the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Because if we're honest, a lot of people struggle with the Old Testament, right? And there's so many riches in there if we get the right context and put the right lenses on. And I want to show you what I mean. If you can go to Luke 24 with me, verse 13, I want to read you what I think is one of the most overlooked portions of scripture. To me, this is one of the most important scriptures in the Bible that unlocks our understanding of how to read the Bible and how to find Jesus. Look what it says. It says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Let me give you context. This is after Jesus had already come. He'd already died. He'd already risen again, and now he was having fun just like appearing to different people after he had risen from the dead, okay? Um, He appeared several times, and this is one of those instances where he's appearing to a couple people, and that's, that's the story we're reading, and he says to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? They stood still looking sad, and then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened? Um there in these days and he said to them what things and they said to him concerning jesus of nazareth a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before god and all the people so they're talking to jesus and they're like hey haven't you heard about this jesus guy right um let me jump down to uh to verse 22 moreover some women in our company amazed us they were at the tomb early in the morning and when they did not find his body the resurrection they came back saying that they had even seen vision of angels who said that he was alive and some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they, him they did not see. And he said to them, Jesus talking, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And if you're in your Bible, this next sentence, I would highlight, underline, circle, mark, whatever you can. Because this is so important. What does Jesus say? It says, beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's easy to pass over, but do you understand what just happened here? Years, years and years of tradition of how people understood the Old Testament. Years and years of how people stood the law, understood the law and the prophets. And in one conversation on a road, Jesus goes, no, no, no. This is what it means. How many of you know that Jesus' interpretation of the Bible is probably the right one? 
right? If you, have, if you have options to interpret the Bible, go with the way Jesus did it. It's probably the best bet. And it's so easy to overlook this portion of Scripture, but what a key this is to us understanding the Old Testament Scriptures. Because beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. You know what that means? There's things concerning Jesus in all the Scriptures. From the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, there's things concerning Jesus. And, and I, I stay here for a minute because I, I want us all to get that. That when you open your Bible and you're reading, you can find Jesus all throughout the Bible if you know how to look. You know how to look. And in a moment, Jesus turned this entire thing on its head and said, no, actually, all that stuff, all those stories, all those prophecies, all those illustrations is actually about me. It's actually about me. As a Christian, that's very important, isn't it? As a Christian, we believe Jesus is the main thing. He's the main person. He is the focal point. And so I, I bring that to your attention because I want you to start to see the context of the Bible, which is that all of it points to Jesus. Guys, all of it points to Jesus. And I thought what would be fun this morning as we put these lenses on, right, the lenses of context and looking for Jesus, I want to take us to a very familiar portion of Scripture that many of you will know. And I, I thought, I thought it would be fun to go through it together with, with this understanding that there are things concerning Jesus in all of it. And so we're going to talk today about the Good Shepherd. Uh, if you will turn to Psalms 23, if you have your Bible, many of you know it. Uh, if you're like me, you grew up with the scripture. It was hanging in my house. It's still hanging in my house. One of my favorite portions of all time. The Lord is my shepherd. And we're going to read through it. And I want to take you through Psalm 23, maybe in a way you've not seen it before. And I shared some of these thoughts on a, on a Wednesday night several months back, but I was preparing and the Lord... I felt guided me to revisit this this morning uh, for this time. And I, I want to show you kind of what the Holy Spirit is revealing in this psalm about Jesus. Okay, so let's, let's go into Psalm 23 and uh, start from the, from the first verse. It says, the Lord is my what? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The word is Jehovah Raha. It's, it's to, tend or to, uh, to tend to a flock or even to befriend a flock. Jehovah Raha, the Lord is my shepherd. And this is not the first time we see God talked about as a shepherd. There's other references in Genesis 48 and 49. Jacob talks about God being the shepherd when he's blessing his sons. And throughout the Psalms and even all the way in the book of Revelation, there's this analogy of God being a shepherd. So, so those reading this wouldn't know what a shepherd was. David certainly who penned this Psalm knew a thing or two about... Is that me? Oh, music. Sorry. About... Um, about what being a shepherd was, right? And so this would have been a f familiar imagery to even readers of the Old Testament, right? The Lord is my shepherd. And even just with that, we could pull some great truth from that, right? We, from what a shepherd is. God is a caretaker. He's a provider. He's a protector. And we could do that um, if we had those lenses on. But I think the thing with the scripture like this and others is if we put the New Testament lenses on of Jesus, we can pull so many deeper, richer things out of this. So much more insight, so much more application. I'll, I'll show you what I mean in a second. I'll, 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 I'll tie it all together. So the Lord is my shepherd. Now, if there is a shepherd, then what does there have to be? Sheep. And who are the sheep? Turn to your neighbor and say, bah. I know. And, and that's not a compliment, guys, right? It's just not like, oh, yay, we're sheep. Like, the sheep are, 
skittish and foolish and stubborn, and they need constant tending to. And, um, you know, there's that, that familiar sort of imagery we have of a sheep would walk right off a cliff if we let it, right? So th this is not flattering that we are sheep. It's humbling. But the thing is, David here, I believe prophetically, under the power of the Holy Spirit, is actually speaking about the Messiah. And let me, let me show you what I mean. If you go to Isaiah 53.6, see, we needed so much more than just a shepherd. Look what it says. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, who's the him? Jesus, the iniquity of us all. We didn't just need, folks, someone to help take care of us and guide us and feed us. Um, we needed a savior. We needed someone to save our lives. Get that? And so when we read this, the Lord is my shepherd, and we realize, hey, he is our shepherd, but we needed so much more than a shepherd. And then we fast forward to the book of John. Um, I want to show you something. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 10, and you'll make this connection immediately. I am the good what? Shepherd. I can almost hear Jesus saying, hearkening them back. Hey, remember that psalm about the shepherd? I, uh, that's me. I'm, I'm the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, he says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, just runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. In context, that's us, guys. That's, that's the Gentiles. Uh, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus says, I'm the shepherd. And I'm not just the shepherd who takes care of my sheep. I'm the shepherd who gives my life for the sheep. That's a, that's a better shepherd, isn't it? That's the good shepherd. So much more than just someone who takes care of me. Jesus says, no, I'm the good shepherd. And I'm not just somebody who's hired to watch the sheep. I give myself for the sheep. And he did that. And so I believe this links these two ideas together that the Lord is my shepherd. I want to just say there, Jesus is, Jesus is my shepherd. He's my shepherd. And if we keep that lens on now and go through the rest of the psalm, I want to, I want to show you, I believe God unlocks so much meaning for us. So should I, switch, should I switch mics? Is this acting up? Yeah, maybe. Good? It's okay? I'll, I'll grab it. Thanks, Ray. Yeah. <coughs> check, 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 so actually, no, I won't. That's too distracting. Hold on. We'll leave it on. We won't use it. So the Lord is my shepherd. And then what is the immediate application that David makes? The next statement he says is what? I shall not want. I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I could look at this one of two ways. I can go, yeah, the Lord's going to take care of me. Um, and I know he's going to provide all the stuff I need, right? A, a, a house and clothes and money, and I'm not going to want for anything. I'll be provided for. And that, that's true, right? God cares and provides. But think about the fulfillment of this in Christ. The, Jesus is my shepherd. I shall not want. Takes on a new level of meaning. Why? 
Because look what Romans 8.32 says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also, not also with him, graciously give us all things? Do you understand the reason we shall not want is because of Jesus? Like, there's nothing to want because of all that Jesus has already given. You see that? So it's not just the Lord's my shepherd, he's going to give me stuff. It's the Lord already gave his own son. What on earth could we possibly want based on what he's already given? There's a big difference there. I shall not want, not because of the stuff God's given me, I shall not want because he already gave Jesus. He already gave Jesus. Different meaning. And to look at it through that lens, this creates a heart response in us of saying, God, how could I want? What, what is there to want? If you gave us your son, the most valuable thing, what else could, what else could I want? What else could I want? Because it's in Jesus. And every need we have physically and spiritually and emotionally, you know what? It's all met in Jesus. That's not, that's not an exaggeration. That's not hyperbole. It's all meant, met in Jesus. He met it all. He met it all. I shall not want. Verse 2 says this, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Green pastures are... Um, a picture of abundance, right? Feeding and grazing on green pastures, never lacking for food. If you think of a, a sheep feeding in green pastures, right? Not barren wastelands, but this abundant, abundant pasture um, representing God's blessings. And I immediately went to this scripture in John 10.10, and this is what Jesus said. He said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. See, see what the good shepherd does? There, there's a, sure, you can say I'm going to live in abundance because God is my shepherd, but that's, I don't believe that's really all there is to it. I believe it's this, that we have the most abundant life because of Jesus. There, there's no real abundance you and I can experience apart from Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? You might think you have abundance, but there isn't any. It's only in Jesus. He said, I have come that you would have life abundantly. And that's where the true abundance lives is in the Son of God. I have the fullest life in every way because of him, because of him. And he leads me beside still waters, rest and security and peace, right? You get, that, you get that imagery? Remember, sheep are very skittish. You throw a rock in the water and they'll run off a cliff, right? Um, still waters, the peace and security of, of rest. And again, I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Can I just tell you that I don't believe there's real rest apart from Jesus? I mean, look at the world. Is there? What, what is there to rest in if we don't have Jesus? So this life of rest and peace is not one where we're, where we're putting security in these false illusions of our money or our things or some government. Please. Um, it's Jesus. It's Jesus who makes the waters still for us. Amen? It's Jesus. That's it. That's it. Guys, it's not, it's not a president. It's not a Supreme Court justice. We need to fight for those things, but that, that's not where peace and rest comes from. You know that, right? It's only in Jesus. It's only in Jesus. Is that type of life available to us? And then he says this. He restores my soul he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Anybody need their soul restored today? Anybody? You know, why don't we do this? Why don't we take a moment, 
close our eyes and ask God to do that. Why don't we do that? Lord, we pray in this moment that you would restore our souls, that you would come now into the empty places of our hearts and souls and you would fill them afresh with the presence of God. Lord, we pray right now that you restore the things that are lost in our hearts, that you would mend the things that are broken. If you're watching online now, I'm praying this with you as well. Lord, whatever it is, you are the one who restores the weary soul. So we ask you to do that this morning. Come restore and refresh by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. It says he restores my soul. We, ha- we need that every day, don't we? That soul restoration from God. Our souls get beat up every day. Don't you feel that? Every day. And we need that restoration from God. And there's a, there's a truth here about the Lord that says he is the restorer of my soul. He can take the weary soul and the empty soul. He can fill it and he can restore it. Do you believe that? See, but there's something bigger, I believe, going on here just, just than that because our souls didn't just need to be kind of filled up or restored. Um, our souls needed to be saved, didn't they? they? We were dead. We were dead spiritually. And I believe this, this restoration of the soul is more than just what we just did, but look at what um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, new soul. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know what you needed more than just a little soul restoration? You needed to actually be made brand new. Your soul needed to start over with God through Jesus. There was no other way. So don't, let's not minimize this idea of God restoring my soul to just him doing that now. That's great. But he, there was a big soul restoration that happened at the cross for you and me. And so to say he restores my soul Through Jesus, he literally took our souls that were dead and brought them to life. Aren't you thankful for that? That's what the good good shepherd did, right? He restored our soul. Amen. Amen. And then he says this. It says, he's completely made me new, right? And then he says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And some of you need to hear this today. He leads me in paths of righteousness, right? He leads me in paths of righteousness. That means two things. The path of righteousness already exists, and Jesus knows how to take me there. Do you see that? It's already there, and he knows how to get me there. Why are you trying to make your own path to righteousness? Why do we do that? Why do do we make our own path when he leads me in the paths of righteousness? Guess what? He already made the path, and he knows the way well. And actually, the only path is through him what the Bible says. And I feel, I really felt that's a word for some of us this morning, is don't go try to find your own path when Jesus has laid it out. To follow Jesus is to walk in righteousness. It's that simple. It's that simple. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Can I tell you that if you have put your faith in Christ, you are already walking the path of righteousness. You're already there. You're already there because you're following Christ. If you follow Jesus, you're there. And so let's not get in trouble making our own paths when Jesus already did. 
We live righteously for him and not for us. And this is what it says, for his name's sake. That's kind of important, right? What is the purpose of living righteous? To glorify who? The Lord. What does Jesus say? Let your good works so shine before men that they would see them and glorify you? No. Glorify your Father in heaven. There's, there's no sense in being good if we're just going to take credit for it. That's just prideful. Um, but there's a lot of value and purpose in being good if we're going to deflect that glory to God. And so he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Do you know what is the biggest um, boast we can make on God as a church is living in righteousness? And then just going, it's not me, <laughs> it's the Lord. It's not me, it's the Lord. Um, I have compassion on people not because I'm a great person, it's because the Lord has changed my heart. I'm giving not because I'm just so great and so generous. It's that the Lord has changed my heart. He's filled me with his spirit. I'm able to love people not because I'm just naturally a really loving person. I'm not. Ask my wife. But you know what? The Holy Spirit in me, he's so loving. He's so loving. And I'm still working on that. And I know a lot of us are still working on it. But the point is this. It's God. It's God that gets the glory when this stuff happens. It's for his name's sake that I walk in righteousness. To God be the glory when I'm righteous, when I live righteously, right? For his name's sake. And then he says this in verse 4. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Some of us are there this morning. Feels like it at least, right? Some of us have a diagnosis that's. it feels like the valley of the shadow of death or a a health problem or a marriage situation or, or stuff with our family or finances. And, and I feel like I'm walking through the shadow of death. It's so bad. It, I have so much despair. But look at this statement. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Can you just say that with me? I fear no evil. I fear no evil. We'll talk about why in a second. But this, this idea of the valley of the shadow of death, um, some people actually thought this was a real place. There was like a valley south of Jericho. It ran parallel to the Jordan River, and people would use it to travel between Jerusalem and Jericho, and it was treacherous, and it was dangerous, and um, some, some of the stuff I read said people actually called it the valley of the shadow of death, because if you take that road, there's a good chance you're gonna, something bad's going to happen to you. And so um, picture this thing of like these, these dumb little sheep just like trotting along this treacherous road of death. But then this, this idea or this attitude that says, I'm not going to be afraid. I should be afraid, right? Shouldn't you be afraid walking through the valley of the shadow of death? You should, if you're looking at this with human eyes. But it says, I will fear no evil. Even when I'm walking through the scariest, hardest times, I will fear no evil. What a declaration of faith. You know, the best time to say, I will fear no evil, is when you're fearing. When you're in fear... That's the time that you say this prayer. That's the time that your feelings will follow your faith. So you don't necessarily have to mean it when you say it, but say it anyway. God, I will fear no evil, even in the valley of the shadow of death. What's interesting is if I put the New Testament lenses on again and look at the context through Jesus, you know, here's the ironic thing. Even death itself, has become a shadow because of Jesus. You get that? Even actual death is just a shadow now because of what Jesus did. 
Think about that for a minute. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this with emphasis. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Jesus has conquered the power of death. He's defeated it, right? We're going to celebrate that in about three or four weeks. He's defeated death. So even death itself now is a shadow. Because in Jesus, even death has been dealt with. And so just, just grasp that for a minute, because wherever you are this morning, what you're going through, I believe you can say this, I will fear no evil. I will fear no evil because of Jesus. Because Jesus has dealt with it. He's dealt with it. And more than that, there's actually a really good reason not to fear evil. And it's this, for you are with me. So, why should I fear no evil? For you are with me. Can you say that? For you are with me. I believe God's with you. Don't you believe that? Even when you're going through the heart, even this morning when you're going through whatever the medical situation or financial situation is, do you, do you know God's with you? I don't know what else I could say to you that's more encouraging than just to say this. God is with you right now. And whatever it is you're going through, God's with you. Take heart because he hasn't left you alone. He's with you. It says, for you are with me. So what's the reason not to be afraid? Is it because there's not scary things happening? No. Is it because there's not evil happening? No. It's because even in the midst of all that, there's a God who's bigger and better, and he's with me in it. That's the reason not to be afraid. That's the reason. It's not just willpower. It's not just like, I'm, not, I'm just not going to be afraid today. It's a it's a firm sense of knowledge that my God is with me, and so I will not fear. <laughs> and what's better for us, church, is it's not just that God's with us. God's in us. I, I, said, that, I, I said that too weak. I didn't emphasize it enough. It's not just that God's with us. God is in us. Yeah, that's how I meant to say it. He's in you. He's in me. So he now dwells. The Spirit of God now dwells in me. I mean, we believe this, right, as Christians? Like, God's Spirit is in me. What is there to fear, then, if God is inside of me? Like, when I walk through a valley of the shadow of death, God's walking through it with me because he's inside of me. That's powerful. That happened because of Jesus. Only because of Jesus, the presence of God could come live in us. So there's no need to fear. And I want you to catch something here. This is very important. For you are with me. This is the first time in the psalm he stopped saying he, 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 and David says you. Do you see that? He's, he's stopped talking about God now, and he started talking to God. That's important. That's important. Because talking about God is really good. I think talking to God is even better. I think it's more important. Do you talk to God? Do you say, God, I trust you? Like, I'm not afraid because you are here. Because there's a connection in prayer and in fellowship and relationship where we have to talk to God. We can't just talk about him all the time. We have to talk to him. He says, you are with me. He changes the way he's talking. And, for, and he keeps that from here on out. He's now talking to God directly. He says, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I want you to see something. There is a um, connection between the presence of the shepherd and his rod and staff. Like, there, there's no, sub, that is all one thought. You are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's, it all goes together because the presence of the shepherd is always accompanied with, with the shepherd's tools. And you know what the tools are? The rod and the staff, right? 
And the, the reason the shepherd has these tools, um, a rod would be kind of for, like, correction. You know, you're going to give the sheep a little tap. I, w- I need a rod at home for my dogs. I should, we should get a rod. Uh, <laughs> little correction, little bump here. <laughs> the Linders need a rod, too. Um, and the Hogan's. And then, and then there's a staff, and, a st- and th- there's kind of like, think of it more like a hook. It's like a long stick with a hook, and like the sheep is, you know, going over here, and you just kind of, you grab it. You take, you know, not that way. No, there's a cliff, right? No, come back. The rod and the staff. The shepherd needs those tools, and the sheep need the shepherd to have those tools, right? Um, and the other use for the rod would be this. You know, when sheep are out in the wild, there's a lot of, um, a lot of enemies, a lot of predators, right? Uh, you need a stick to beat them off with, don't you? And so you have a rod, and the shepherd could, could bite off the wolves or whatever um, with the rod. And I think there's a strong picture here of, of the word of God. I mean, the word of God is both a rod and a staff, isn't it? It, it, is, it gives us correction. It provides protection if we follow the words. Read Psalm 119 about the value of the word of God, right? All that the word of God is for us. And the rod and the staff comfort me. See, we have to learn to take comfort in the presence of God, but also in the word of God. You know, there's immense comfort in the word of God. When you have a, when you have a book that has so much truth that transcends any garbage that this world can tell you it thinks it's truth, there's great comfort in that, isn't there? There's great comfort in the word of God to keep us on track, to pull us back when we're going astray, for us to use as a weapon if there's enemies coming after us that we need to fight off, to use it as a rod. So I don't fear not only because God's presence is with me, but I don't fear because I have his word. His word helps me not to be afraid. See that? The rod and the staff, they comfort me. And then he says this, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Some people think that here David stopped talking about sheep and he's talking about people now, right? Because it would be weird to prepare a table for sheep. I actually think that's the whole point. I think he's still talking about sheep. You know why? It's weird that a shepherd would prepare a table for sheep. But how much better does that illustrate the luxurious love of God? That he has prepared a table and be like me, like I have a table at home and my dogs think I prepare it for them all the time, right? Like they just come and put their little heads on it like they're going to eat with us because they're that big. Uh, but I didn't prepare it for them because I wouldn't prepare a table for my animals to come and dine with me. But I have a shepherd who has prepared a table for his sheep. What kind of shepherd does that? Jesus. The same, the same master who said, I don't call you servants anymore, but I call you what? Friends. That's the, that's the shepherd that does that. That's the shepherd that prepares a table and says, come dine with me. Jesus. Jesus does that. And so you can look at this analogy of preparing a table and go, you know, God's going to give me security. And even in the midst of these enemies around me, whether they're physical enemies or, you know, David had a lot of physical enemies, right? So I know as he's writing this, there's immediate applicable like stuff in his heart going on here. Like, God, I'm not going to be afraid because even when my enemies are around me, you're preparing a table, right? But I think there's more than that. I think, who are, who are our enemies as Christians? Think about that. There's the world system, right? There's the philosophies of the world. There's Satan. There's the dark one. There's his demonic forces. There's death. The Bible says death is the last enemy that Christ has defeated. 
So we have enemies, right? Not everyone likes us. You guys know that. We have enemies out to get us. But in the midst of those enemies, there's a security and a confidence that I can pull up a chair and sit at a table and eat, right? And, and I actually think there's huge imagery here of something. Um, do you guys recall a time in Scripture where, where they literally prepared a table in the presence of their enemies? Passover meal, sound familiar, right? The night that Jesus would be betrayed and taken to the cross, what did they do first? Prepared a table with a meal in the presence of their enemies. And this is what I think is so significant here. I think there's such a picture of salvation in this, in this verse of, in the cross because not only is Jesus preparing a meal, he is the meal. I'm not, not being weird. I'm going to read you a scripture in a second. He is the meal. Look at John 6. It says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. And it says a lot of people got up and left after he said that. I, you could understand that, right? They missed the meaning. It wasn't literal. It wasn't physical. It is saying, he is saying, you will partake of the sacrifice I'm making in my body and the blood of the new covenant that I'm shedding. That's how you get life. So he's not just preparing the table. Jesus is our meal. He's our Passover feast. He is, he is our way to salvation through his body and his blood. Do you see that imagery here? He prepares a table in the presence of my enemies. What happened at Passover and at the cross clinched victory and took all hope away from any enemies we have, guys. There's no more hope for our enemies because of what Jesus did. In fact, Paul says it this way in Colossians. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Aren't you thankful for that? He, he, he made an embarrassment of them. Satan had all these plans completely destroyed by the cross. I'm so thankful for the cross. I'm so thankful for the cross. And every enemy we could possibly have has been defeated because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then he says, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And again, this is that imagery of, so there's a couple of things going on here actually. Sheep, shepherds would anoint the heads of sheep with oil for a lot of reasons. It would, it would stop them from getting caught in things. It would stop parasites from getting into their you know, sheep are kind of mangy and dirty and, and hard to take care of. And so they would anoint them with this oil to protect them as a covering. And, again, I think there's such imagery here of after, after I feasted at the Passover with Christ, there's this anointing. Anytime you see oil in the Bible, most of the time we know it's a reference to the Holy Spirit, right? There's an anointing oil and my cup overflows. What a picture of the Holy Spirit as I come into salvation, to salvation through Christ, of being filled with the Spirit of God, anointed in His power, and my cup overflowing. I'll give you a couple of verses. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 21. It says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has also put His seal on us, and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's like He's taken the oil of the Holy Spirit, and He's covered us in it. 
right? We walk in the covering of the Spirit of God. And there's a protection there from some of the things that would seek to destroy us, right? And there's a covering and there's an anointing. The power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, right? And John 7 says this. It says, on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That sounds like a cup overflowing to me, right? It is the Holy Spirit filling us. This stuff is fulfilled in Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, guys. The, my cup overflows with the Spirit of God. I'm filled with His Spirit. Jesus said, out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water. That's the Spirit of God. Spirit of God. And we need God to fill our cups all the time, right? Not for our sake, but for others. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. God fills me with his Holy Spirit, not so I can just stand there and gush out all over the place and do nothing. He fills me with his Holy Spirit, so I'm empowered to go out and do things with that overflowing Holy Spirit that's coming out of me. Bring the kingdom of heaven to earth through the power of his Spirit. So he gives me more than I need. He makes my cup overflow so that I have enough for others too. See that? My cup overflows. And then he says this in verse 6. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Who can testify to that? I can. Right? The goodness and mercy of God. So many of us could have story after story about the goodness and mercy of God. But, again, I, I, I think that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the goodness and mercy of God. Right? The, the, if we wanted a picture of what the goodness and mercy of God looks like, it's not... It's not necessarily found in me living my life and good things sort of happening to me, which they do, or me getting these little sort of acts of mercy. It is this picture that because of Jesus Christ, I walk constantly covered in the favor and grace and mercy of God, and I couldn't get away from it if I tried to. It follows me all the days of my life. You, 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 in Jesus Christ, you cannot walk outside of the mercy and grace of God. It's not possible. Can I just say that to you? You are covered in the mercy and grace of God. And if your faith is in Christ, there's not a thing you can do to get out from that covering. I don't know why you would want to anyway, but that's the tenacity with which God has shown his grace and his mercy through Jesus. All the days of my life, I walk covered by that. And I've known that to be true in my life. There's been hard seasons, and there will be more hard seasons, but I know that the righteous are not forsaken. And I know that the goodness and mercy of God are ever-present in my life. And I think if you all think about it, you know that too. Right? And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So David, again, speaking prophetically, um, and David knew a thing or two about the house of the Lord, right? But this is a different house of the Lord. This is the house of the Lord that we will be with him in eternity. And, it's, and he's speaking prophetically about this eternal dwelling place. This has been the heart of God all along, to dwell with his people in fellowship. And David, David's reminding us, that's where I'm going to be forever. The Lord made a promise that he was going to dwell with his people, and the Lord keeps every promise he makes, doesn't he? And this is what Jesus uh, said in John 14, one of my favorite scriptures. In my Father's house... 
There are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Man, what a day that's going to be, right? Looking forward to that day. Jesus says, there's a lot of rooms in my Father's house, and I'm preparing it for you because I'm going to come back and get you, and you're going to be with me forever. Wow. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to that. Do you see Jesus in this psalm? Do you see, do you see, do you see these pictures and these, these images and these things that were fulfilled hundreds and hundreds of years later, written by a guy, David, prophetically under the anointing of the Holy Spirit that had been fulfilled in Jesus? Can I tell you something? This is everywhere throughout the Old Testament, guys. Everywhere. If you put the right glasses on and read the Scriptures, you see Jesus all throughout it. Why? Because Jesus is kind of the most important thing. He's, it's all about Jesus. And I want to, I'll invite the worship team up as we close. I want to, one last scripture to bring this thing full circle. Because um, I told you that this, the story culminates with Jesus coming back, right? He's coming back. And he's bringing heaven to earth with him. And we're going to live with him forever. And it's going to be so much better than it is now. Let's just say it that way. Um, and this is what Jesus describes in Matthew 25. Look what he says. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations. And look at this. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. See, maybe it's not so bad to be a sheep after all, right? If that's what happens to the sheep when the shepherd comes back, then I'm all, count me in. I want to be a sheep. I want to enter into his glory forever. You guys want that too? Can we bow in prayer? Lord, we are thankful for your word. And we are thankful, Jesus, for you. God, it's all about you. Even now, we worship you. Can you maybe just lift your voice and worship him? We worship you, Jesus. We adore you, Jesus. You are the Son of God. You are the King of kings. You are the Lamb who's slain to take away the sins of the world. And we honor you. We bless you. We glorify you, Jesus, because you are worthy of all the praise. And you're worthy of all the honor. Praise the name of Jesus. What a good shepherd you are. As we have heads bowed, I just want to take a moment and, um, and ask you, if, if you've not ever responded to, to that call of the shepherd, to, to the gospel that I talked about, if you've not ever put your faith in Jesus and responded to the fact that he came became a man, died and rose from the dead for your sins. And if you want to do that today, every head's going to be bowed. I just want to give you a quick opportunity if you're here and you say, I want to put my faith in Christ. I believe that and I want to follow him and have eternal life and be with him forever. And if you want to do that this morning, can you just lift your eyes up or slip your hand up so I can see you? I just want to pray with you. I'm not going to embarrass you. 
but I want you to have that opportunity this morning. If anyone wants to do that, just catch my attention real quick. Is that what you want? Anybody? Just looking around the room. what you want? Okay. Bless you. Anyone else? I can't see you. Just slip your hand up. I want to put your faith in Jesus today. He loves you. Can we say this prayer together, church? And even if you didn't lift your hand, we can pray this together. We can reaffirm our faith. Say, dear God, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Jesus, I believe you came to this earth, you died for my sins, you were buried, and you rose again. And so, Jesus, I put my faith in you. I want to follow you from this day forward. Thank you for the forgiveness of my sins. I love you, Jesus, and I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Why don't we worship together? Jesus be the center. 
Jesus be the center of 